The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Saunders Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. Have you ever wondered why we humans love to use our intuition even when we are surrounded by data? And we also know that even simple algorithms can be more accurate than human judgment? We put that exact question to Tanya Lombroso, Arthur W. Marks, professor of psychology and director of the Concepts and Cognition Lab at Princeton University. And it turns out that the answer is surprisingly complex. Tanya, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's it, it's terrific to um, have someone on who understands so much about human intuition and human thinking um, because we spend a lot of time helping people navigate this new um, data environment where data is kind of prime. But I'm left with this question all the, at the end of every day almost, which is when we have so much data at our fingertips, why do we still prefer to make our decisions from an intuitive perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's worth saying that we don't always prefer it, but there definitely are cases where we do. And that's that sort of puzzling. And I, I think there have been two common answers that are both not entirely satisfactory. One answer is that humans are lazy. Uh, it's more cognitive effort to really think something through and to get the evidence. And I think that's a little piece of the story, but not all of it. Uh, another common answer is that we're really bad statistical thinkers and statistical reasoners who just aren't very well equipped to deal with the kind of evidence that we get these days. And again, I think there's something to that, but I think that's not the whole story. The, the part of this puzzle that I'm most interested in has to do with cases where it's not just that people don't use the evidence, uh, but maybe they don't think they should use the evidence. Uh, so, so one example I sometimes use to motivate this is you might imagine somebody asks you out on a date. How do you decide whether or not to say yes or no? It, it's not just that you maybe don't have a lot of quantitative evidence available to you about how to answer that decision, but you might think there would be something wrong with how you made that decision if you went home and did like a cost-benefit analysis and entered everything in Excel and tried to calculate the expected utility of saying yes versus no, right? For some domains of life, people, I think, have the view that you, it's not just that it's difficult to get the evidence or to have that constrain your decision, but that you ought not to just rely on the evidence, that other factors matter too, including your intuitions and your gut responses. 
That's a fascinating thought. I'm I'm thinking through how um, people react when they're offered data that they like what it says versus they don't like what it says. How do you break down what this um, judgment of ought to take into account might be? Is it is it is it an emotional reaction in your body that says like it's a feeling that feels good or that feels bad, or is it more of a kind of um, a deeper moral judgment, or is it uh, how contextual is that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's pieces of all of that. So we know from research in my lab and other people's labs that it definitely depends on the type of decision that you're talking about. So people think it's more appropriate to rely on your intuitive gut reactions if it comes to romantic relationships or choosing which song to play at a party or deciding what clothing to wear. And if you get to something like what you should choose as a retirement plan or which piece of technology to buy, in those cases, people actually think really you should probably look at the evidence and do the cost-benefit analysis and think things through. So it definitely depends on those kinds of contextual factors. And then we also know that the extent to which people rely on intuition versus evidence and deliberation varies by other considerations too, like their expertise, the context, uh, how costly it would be to get things wrong, uh, and so on. Um, but I really like one piece of what you asked, which has to do with the idea that there might be something moral going on here. Uh, so there's there's some evidence from my lab and from others too that when you respond intuitively, maybe that communicates something to someone about what you're deep, authentic commitments are. Maybe it's somehow a deeper reflection of who you really are, right? So if you think about the romantic relationship case, if uh, someone proposes to you and they're just there immediately, they say, yes, like that communicates a lot of confidence in the relationship and commitment to you. Uh, It seems like a really authentic decision. If they say instead, "Um, you know, this is such an important decision that I'm going to go home and do a cost-benefit analysis and look at all the evidence, Um, that that seems to communicate something really different, right? So I think another piece of this is what do we communicate to ourselves and to other people by virtue of the fact that we had an immediate response and we're willing to commit versus having to go through one of these more deliberative kinds of routes to arriving at a decision. Yeah, it's almost like the the fact that you answer fast and passionately and it's like system one, if you like, It's it's also conveying that it's so right for you. Yeah, that you don't you don't have to go away and think about it. I'm reminded of the, the archetypal stories of Darwin doing his his checklist of should I get married or should I not get married, and reading that and thinking, what does that say about what he, what his relationship with other humans was? I and mean, we will never really know him now, but you can see that with um, uh, making a decision from a. I think one of your papers digs into this issue of morality. And if you make a, a judgment that is too analytical, you might be and not actually have morals or not have a stance on something that, it, and people are left with a, with a vacuum about whether you really care. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's, there's two questions here and it's important to keep them separate. I think one is how do we tend to judge each other in these cases? And and I think you're right. That's what the evidence suggests, that if somebody's very calculating, uh, does this sort of utilitarian calculus about a moral decision, people tend to think maybe they're less committed, maybe I can't trust this person as much. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up. There's another question, which is, you know, is that really the way we ought to evaluate other people? And there 
I'm kind of inclined to say maybe we're making a mistake in judging people harshly for going through the cost-benefit analysis and so on, right? So there's really this kind of question about current human psychology and how we tend to judge each other. And that really discounts this kind of reasoning. And then there's a question of how we ought to reason and what kinds of norms we ought to have. And there, um, you know, it's not just a psychological question. I think you want philosophers and all sorts of other people involved in that conversation too. But part of me wants to say, we're making a mistake when we judge others harshly for really thinking through their moral commitments. That That's probably actually a good way to arrive at the right moral views. Mm. Do you think it's possible that the that judgment of the individual is tied to our judgment of, of other humans based on their intent walking into a decision? So if I respond really quickly, I'm purely, you know, operating based on, on my intuition, which feels more intent based versus doing a deep, you know, and analytical dive. Um, you know, it, I'm just wondering if that's sort of connected to that. We talk about the difference between judging humans based on intent and judging, and judging machines based on consequences. And when we're analytical, it almost makes us feel like a machine or the person coming to you says, I've done this big analysis and here's the conclusion that I've come up with. It's, it's a very sort of analytical machine kind of based process where you're judging the outcome of it versus the like, no, I want to take care of this, this portion of our customer base because I really care about them versus I think we need to take care of this customer base because they might leave us if we don't. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think there is a connection there. So there's, as, as you've alluded to, there's evidence that when we judge other people, we definitely care about their intentions, not just their actions. And we also care about their character, what we think they're like as people. Um, so there's a natural question, why do we care about these things so much? Why don't we just care about the outcomes of their actions? And I think part of the story is that we typically don't just interact with somebody in one-off situations. Typically, we have ongoing relationships over time. And so we care not just about how they acted in this particular case where it had one particular outcome. We care about whether or not we can trust them in the future, whether or not we can have a, anticipate how they're going to act in the future and have an ongoing relationship. And so I think part of the reason we care so much about someone's intentions and about their character is because it tells us about that. What can we expect from this person in the future? Are they going to be a good cooperative partner in the future? Can I trust them? Um, now, it, it's, it's somewhat puzzling to me why we don't also care about that in the case of machines. Right? Why don't we also care about the, the intent, so to speak, and the character, so to speak, of machines? And I think part of it might be that we don't yet think about them in those terms. Uh, but that seems to me to be something that could change as the complexity of technology changes and as our, um, our own ability to think about them and their sophistication changes. A truly mechanistic machine doesn't have the ability to have intent um, on its own. Right? It only has the ability to operate based on the intent of, who, of the operator, whereas... <laughs> Now things are sort of blended. They're a little bit changed. Yeah, I think I have a really hard time drawing a sharp line between purely mechanistic on the one hand and whatever it is we as humans are on the other hand. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we are the sorts of creatures who we can meaningfully describe as having intents and character and so on. Um, but I, I'm also committed to the view that we are largely mechanistic sorts of things. You know, we have... Uh, really complicated biology and so on, but we're also physical systems. And so I have a hard time drawing a line between a really simple computer where we definitely want to say there's no intent there at all and humans where I want to say there is, right? I think a lot of our technology is, is starting to fall into the gray area that's getting closer and closer to the human-like case. Hmm. Yeah, well, you can cite many examples where a, a, a human didn't really know what they were doing. 
But then you can also think of many, you know, quite sophisticated AIs that it might be the intent of the designer, but nevertheless, the user um, experiences the intent from the AI. Like we were talking yesterday about um, having a, 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 a almost a, a calibration up front in a, with a, an AI coach where the AI coach, you, you, the user chooses do you want me to give you a hard time or do you want me to just sort of give you an easy time and listen and be compassionate sort of thing? And um, and it was like the user gets to choose that either one of those paths, but it's really clear that there's an intention behind what the AI is trying to, to do. Uh, but this is all so kind of early. There aren't many examples to even point to. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. I mean, I think one analogy that just illustrates how complicated this is and that I think people are really appreciating in the uh, machine learning and AI community is, you know, what's different between the relationship between a programmer and the program or the engineer and the machine learning system uh, and a parent versus a child? You know, in both cases, there are situations where you're going to want to really attribute things to the parent or to the programmer. You know, they set up the environment a particular way and they provided certain kinds of inputs. Um, but at some point, you start really thinking that it's the responsibility of the child. Um, and, you know, clearly our current best AI is not as sophisticated along all dimensions as, as a human child. Um, but I think seeing the complexity of these issues in the AI case, I think helps us appreciate that there were always these complexities in the human human case that it's even hard to think about there. As the, you know, we're, um, we've now gotten to a world that's awash in data and uh, we get involved with uh, companies talking about, you know, trying to drive more data-based decision-making. Um, and, I'm curious how you think about the the difference between making decisions based on intuition versus making decisions based on large analytical processes of data or meshing those two together and how we best approach that. It gets more, you know, is making a decision, since we are naturally intuitive decision makers, is it getting more difficult for us to make decisions based on the quantity of data that's out there? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think... I mean, it's certainly the case that I think we have a harder time thinking about the scale at which we currently get data and also the complexity of the kinds of processing that go into that data. Um, so I would expect that as that complexity increases, our ability to, to generate an intuition or intuitive response about something might be compromised. Um, that seems right. I think what we do about that is less clear to me. Do we just kind of cede more and more control to the output of these analytic systems that might be somewhat opaque to us. Um, I mean, certainly I think it would be a mistake to say that we should engage in less good decision-making just because it seems intuitive to us. So I think it's important in these cases to really think about what is it that we're trying to optimize or aim for. If it's a, if it's a context like medical decision-making and saving lives or having particular medical outcomes, you might have some metrics and we can, we can understand what those metrics are and that those are the ones we want to optimize and then rely on the data to tell us what will optimize them. But in other domains, we might care a lot about whether people sort of buy into the, the program they're participating in, whether or not they trust it and so on. And there we're really looking at these psychological outcomes. And for those, maybe it does matter that people have an intuitive sense. That's what's going to drive their sense of trust and so on. So it's, I think it's, it's hard to answer this in general because I think in different domains, we have different things we're going for trying to optimize. And I think that's what's going to dictate the extent to which we try to sort of work with the constraints of human preferences and intuition versus circumvent them and just try to aim for the best outcome. Yeah, it's almost like you've described a blending of 
a, a, a more sophisticated level of how we judge the outcomes, which also includes the context of of when analysis is valued. And you spoke about we're not good statistical reasoners. Um, we hear that a lot, but I actually don't understand why. Do you, do you know why? Can, can you help enlighten me on that? Because I, I, I say it all the time, but I don't know why. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give you partial answers, and I will preface what I say by saying that you could ask 10 cognitive psychologists and get 10 slightly different answers. Um, so I, I think a fairly common view for which there's a lot of evidence is that we're not great at explicit reasoning about probabilities. So if you take the sorts of math problems, basically, that you might encounter in a statistics class or that you might have to solve as part of what you're doing in data analysis or as an engineer, and you give that to people who are not experts, they tend to do really badly. They're not good at explicit statistical reasoning over quantities. Um, But if you think about it, that's not the thing that our evolutionary experience or our developmental experience has really set us up to do very well. So there's other kinds of statistical reasoning, which have to do with basically telling your experience on a more implicit level, getting a sense for what are the features of your environment? What sorts of things have worked in the past and haven't worked? What are the patterns and what I observe and how people behave and um, you know what works in my job and things like that? And that kind of implicit learning from experience, I think, is a kind of statistical reasoning. It's not necessarily explicit. It's not necessarily introspectively accessible to us. We can't necessarily spit out quantitative conclusions. But it's what guides our predictions or expectations about the world into a larger center actions. And that kind of statistical reasoning is one that actually humans are pretty good at. Um, so really, I think it depends what sort of statistical thinking you're think you're, you have in mind. And that can lead people to say either we're really bad at it or actually humans are incredible learning systems, right? Just look at what we've achieved. On one hand, there's the this works most of the time and never on these ends of the like an edge case. So you've got that sort of rule of thumb reasoning that 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 is generally pretty um, sound, generally. But then you've got others that maybe fall prey to sort of a, you know, a stereotype, which is also another part of learning. I mean, Helen, I think what you were describing was largely a sort of system one, system two difference, mm-hmm. right, where we might have one kind of more heuristic-based way of reasoning and another more explicit, deliberative, slow way of reasoning. And, and I think that's right. But I think there's another another kind of cut through human cognition, and it's more about having more implicit statistical learning mechanisms versus more explicitly available uh, reasoning mechanisms. And you can think we have these implicit statistical learning mechanisms without thinking that those mechanisms are based on heuristics. In fact, those implicit learning mechanisms might be extremely sophisticated and not rely on sort of um, quick rules of thumb, but rather rely on the aggregation of of a lot of data. Um, in, in sophisticated ways, right? So a lot of the sorts of learning mechanisms that are involved in neural networks are the sorts of things that don't naturally map onto the way we think about heuristics, but at the same time, to the extent systems like that are operating and allowing us to do a statistical tolerance of our environment and generate predictions and so on, they, they might be more like Bayes' rule, right? Or approximating Bayes' rule. Um, uh, and so on the one hand, they're, they're kind of sophisticated in the way that you might think more explicit reasoning is. But on the other hand, they are... Um, operating in this more implicit way that's based on experience. So just before, I think you said, um, you know, we're, we're quite good as humans, we're quite good at um, experiencing things and developing intuitions that can be accurate. Um, but we're not very good at explaining that in a sort of a computational way. And 
I'm thinking and uh, that you know we we talk about um, uh, calibrating confidence with people quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So, what's your prediction? Okay, so what's what 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 confidence level do you put on? Give a percentage. How confident right. are you? Right. right? And th- I find that step to be challenging. You know, I can look back. I used to be in the business of prediction. I used to be a Wall Street analyst a long time ago. And I look back over the history. I mean, it's pretty good predictions. I could not have told you what percentage confidence I was, though, which is a real gap when we're dealing with prediction systems in AI that actually do generate confidence levels, right? They, there is that. Am I, do you, am I hitting on something right there and understanding a gap in terms of understanding the confidence level? That is that that is something that is natural for machines programmed to do that, but it doesn't feel natural for us as humans to be able to assign a probability to our confidence. I, I think you're right that it doesn't feel natural to do that quantitatively, um, but in fact, we do it in a in a more coarse grained way all of the time in the way that we talk to each other. Right? We'll say, "I think this is probably going to happen." I'm pretty sure, uh, and so on. Right? So if you look at the way we use language and the way we communicate both linguistically and also in our body language and other ways, I think we, we do communicate levels of certainty mm. in a much more coarse-grained way, right? Some evidence suggests that maybe we have about like five categories of certainty, not, not 100, let alone the decimal points you can you know, have if you're doing this quantitatively. Um, uh, but, I, but you're also right that in many domains, there's a lot of evidence that we are massively overconfident or just poorly calibrated. Um, but that's not true in all domains, you know? So so in, in cases where you tend to get feedback consistently on how you're doing, people are better calibrated. So I, I wouldn't want to say people aren't able to understand this uncertainty about our propositions. I think we are just in a coarse-grained way. Uh, and I wouldn't want to say we're never calibrated, but certainly we are often really, really uncalibrated, um, not just in our own assessments, but also in our ability to know how seriously to take other people's confidence. So there's, you know, there's good evidence that we tend to be overly swayed by other people being confident, um, including in cases where, you know, unless you have good reason to think they're experts or they're reliable or they're well calibrated, you probably shouldn't take their confidence too seriously. You mentioned feedback. Um, it, mm. it does it does make me wonder um, how should we, um, I guess, know when intuition's good, like just generally a good thing. And is it, I mean, having a, a situation, an environment where there's lots of feedback, where you have deep experience or you've been in it a long time, there's a, we witness a little bit of a, almost a culture war going on at the moment between the people who have the data, because it's still hard to get data sometimes, and the people who have the experience who um, have like just an instinctive reaction to certain certain situations and they kind of know the answer navigating what at the moment is we know it's a false dichotomy we know you have to put both together but that doesn't always happen naturally how do we think about bringing the worlds of data and intuition together better i i wish i had a a great answer to that it's such a good question I, i think so so we do know a little bit in the psychology literature about the conditions under which intuitions might be more or less accurate and you already hit on one of the important parts which is feedback so to the extent you've had a lot of experience, so you have the expertise, and you've had it in a way that means that you actually get feedback on your judgments when you were right and wrong and so on. You're, it, we have better reason to think we should take your intuition seriously. Um, but then the, the broader question of how we integrate that with data, I think is, um, 
think is a really fascinating one. I mean, I think often when we're thinking about cases that have to do with, you know, humans interacting with machines or two modes of reasoning interacting with each other, I like to think about a more familiar case, which is just human-human collaboration. Um, I mean, I think most of us have the experience of working in teams in various capacities. And I think one thing that makes an effective team is each side recognizing its strengths and limitations so that you can have a good division of labor and you can have an appropriate deference to the other person as necessary. Uh, and so I think ultimately that's what we're going for. It's that kind of collaboration between mm -hmm. these different kinds of approaches. Um, and so the, 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 the details of how we work that on any given domain, I think are going to be complicated. And I think a lot of it comes down to the question of what is it that, what are the goals that you're trying to optimize, right? Um, are you trying to, do you have some outcome indicator where what you want to know is that you're, you know, increasing profit or that you're improving this medical outcome or that you're decreasing poverty assessed in these ways? If we can agree on that, then I'm reasonably confident that we can then try to figure out, well, what is, what do each of these contribute? Um, but often I think some of the talking past one another with the, when you have these different kinds of frameworks that people haven't agreed on that. To what extent are you trying to maximize patients feeling good about their experience, for example, and wanting to come back to the doctor and comply with treatment versus some particular quantitative indicator of their health six months later? Those are both good outcomes to optimize. But if we're not first agreeing on what is it that we're trying to go for, I think it's going to be hard to even get to have the conversation. It's pretty common to watch collaborative teams and they're wrestling with collaboration like as they form, as they get together. The, the thing that they struggle to do is stay focused on the problem and defining actually what it is they're trying to do. They're, jumping to solutions is, is so easy. It, it feels like it's something that's it's so common and so difficult to stop. We have this intuition to rush down the path to, to so let me show you what I've thought about this by showing you what the solution is. It's almost like you, you want to give it as a gift. Here you go. Here it is. But um, we're backing up and really exploring the, the, the problem seems to be, you know, if teams do that, that's when they really start to understand um, how to talk to each other because that's when they actually stumble over the language differences. Mm -hmm. my, probability, my probably is the same as your almost certain. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good observation. I, I think another part of this maybe that could be important is it's really if you have an intuition and somebody else says, look, but my evidence says this full stop. It really feels like something's missing there because you want to have a sense for why it is you have divergent judgments about this case. And what is it that your intuition might be capturing that the data is not? Or what is it the data might be capturing that your intuition is not? So I think another part of this might just be developing better tools to understand the basis for these discrepant judgments such that we can better evaluate them. And, you know, one, one feature of intuition is that it's kind of opaque to us, right? When we reason about something explicitly, we can say, well, here are the three factors I considered and I thought this was most important and so on. Um, but when you just kind of have a feeling that something's the right way to go, a characteristic of that is that you can't articulate it. And so I think that makes intuitions especially hard to put into this mix um, and then on the computer side, we have an issue that, I, that I'm sure you're more familiar with than I am, which is a kind of explainability or opacity issue where often you can have a very complex system that gives you a judgment, but it's really unclear why. Mm. Um, so I think maybe we've had insufficient attention to the intuition opacity problem or the inexplainability of human intuition, which is in some <laughs> ways analogous to the AI explainability issue when it comes to negotiating disagreements. Well, it's, it, I wonder if it's compounded by the fact that... Um... We talk about one of the differences and the advantages that humans have over machines 
is machines require data in order to be able to make a prediction, right? So there has to be some sort of past data that's relevant to the prediction area that you're going for. Whereas humans were quite, we're pretty good at taking knowledge from one experience and applying it in a new context. And when you get those two things battling against each other, sometimes the experience I have, I'm applying it over here, but I may not really understand why I think it's applicable. Right. Right. I, right. you know, there's something in my experience that's telling me that that's what's going to happen. And there is no data to back it up because the data wasn't there or something else is in conflict. But it's almost like I think there's something about opacity of intuition. I love that for, that that there is something about we don't really understand it at, at, in certain decision making processes. We don't even understand why our intuition is telling us something. We can't explain it. We just know it's there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one tool that psychologists and sometimes even more than psychologists, philosophers get very good at is using a kind of self experimentation or self thought experiment to try to figure out what's driving your intuition, right? So you might have a, an immediate reaction in a particular case, and you're not sure why. But you can try to systematically vary features of the case and think to yourself, well, you know, suppose it was another person who had told me this, would I have responded differently? Suppose I, I hadn't been in a bad mood for a different reason, would I have responded differently? You know, suppose this had to do with this other thing, would I have responded differently? And I think, I think sometimes people are, are reasonably good at figuring out in these kinds of cases, oh, so when I responded like this, it was really due to this feature of the case and not this other feature of the case. Mm. And I think what people are doing there is not so different from what an engineer might do with a sort of black box system where they get some output and they're like, well, did it have to do with this feature of the input? Let me, let me you know, change the contrast of the images and see if that makes a difference. Did it have to do with this feature of the input? And so on, right? So I think the solutions to opacity are also somewhat parallel in that mm. we can do a kind of experimentation and try to figure out well, what's driving this? And then once we have a sense of what's driving it, we're in a better position to ask ourselves whether that that ought to be the the determining factor in how we go ahead and act, or is that something that we should discount? I really like your first idea there, which is to 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 change the person who told you. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> because that must if you have a if you have a a, a really distinctively different emotional reaction, that's got to tell you something. And it could be positive. You know, it yeah. could be, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I think we should do this because Jane told me to. And I go back and I analyze it and realize, well, if Bob told me to, I probably wouldn't. And then I have to stop and say, well, is that actually a, a, a is my intuition, you know, supported by some sort of rational analysis there? Right. Does that make sense, you know, as I dig into it a little bit more and ask a, a few more questions and layer it down? It may, it may still actually be, you know, it may actually support the decision. I think it's a really good question to to put in a teenage girl's brain when it comes to their mother asking. We're going to work on I'm pretty that sure one. I know which, which daughter you might be thinking <laughs> I think there's something, something selective to the teenage brain that means that it's not until years later that she will appreciate that you were always right. Yeah. We just say oh, thank you. Can we, we just say <laughs> closed for renovation. <laughs> but um, I, I I love this 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 train this track we've sort of touched on around explanations and um and we you know obviously that's a big thing with with AI and often we let people off you know we've had this conversation with a couple of people about do, do we really push hard on explanations one well you can push on yourself. That's a, that's a nice thing to sort of internalize and be, get a bit more self-reflective about that. Um, 
But what makes a good explanation? Are there, are there things that we look for as, uh, that are better than others? Um, what, what, how would you think about crafting explanations that are satisfying? Yeah, you know, there's, there's this huge literature in philosophy of science where people have tried to characterize what makes a good scientific explanation. Uh, and there, there's, there's reasonable amounts of agreement on some of the features that make for a good explanation. Um, so one sort of, one perspective, not shared by everybody, but shared widely, is that when you're asking for an explanation, you sort of have an implicit alternative in mind. So, you know, if I might ask you, Ed, you know, why did Adam eat the apple? Um, but what I mean is, why did Adam, as opposed to only Eve, eat the apple? And that's a different question than why did Adam eat the apple? You know, he could have eaten the peach. He could have eaten the pear. Why did he eat the apple? So when we ask a question, we often have a contrast class or an alternative in mind. And we want to know, why was it the case that this one thing happened rather than the alternative that I have in mind? And a good explanation is something that tells you what made a difference to the outcome that actually occurred versus the one that you have in mind as an alternative. Um, now, that typically involves identifying something about the causal structure or the causal process that led to something. Um, uh, but even there, there's, there's all sorts of aspects of the causal structure and all sorts of things that you could point out. And so even within those constraints, you're going to want something that's probably kind of simple, you know, has parsimony, it's elegant. And you're going to want something that's, that's generalizable or broad. You don't want to know something that's totally idiosyncratic to this case. You want to know what are the general features of the world by virtue of which this one thing happened rather than this other. So these general characteristics of picking out a causal difference maker, being simple and being general in some sense, I think are, are widely accepted as good features of an explanation. But of course, what that looks like in different domains and in different contexts might be really, really different. Because of partly what you say about you've got something in the person who's getting the explanation has got something in mind already. That's right. And some of the times what they have in mind might itself be a misconception or, or erroneous. I mean, sometimes the way you respond to a question is by saying, actually, your presupposition is wrong, right? I mean, if somebody somebody says, why is the sky red? You're not going to start explaining why the sky is red. You're going to say, wait a minute, the sky is not always red. In fact, usually it's not red, <laughs> uh, right? So there was a presupposition in that explanation request that itself needed to be corrected. Uh, and sometimes those presuppositions can be much, much more subtle. Um, you know, one example I give of a, of, you know, kind of a weird question is, suppose somebody says, why do chairs typically have a number of legs? That's a perfect square. I mean, it's true that chairs have, typically have four legs and that four is a perfect square, but there's something weird about that question, right? Mm -hmm. It sort of presupposes that something about the perfect squareness is related to the number of legs. And maybe there's nothing there. Maybe there's a kind of presupposition and even asking the question that suggests you're thinking about something the wrong way. Mm. It, that, it brings up, uh, it certainly says that listening Good listening has to start with a good understanding in your own mind of what presuppositions you've 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 got at the start of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing that I think I sometimes find myself doing, and I know is it can often be a good strategy, is to when somebody asks you something, try to play back to them what they're asking and why, so that you even understand what the explanation request is. Because <laughs> otherwise, you might find you've answered something that wasn't what they were really asking. So it, I like how you say that the. Um... There's a tie between the cause and the explanation, right? Explaining something based on the cause and the effect in that. Is, do you have any thoughts or recommendations on how people can explain things when some or all of the information they've got is coming out of a machine that just can, can present correlations? So there isn't in the data, 
the prediction of uh, you know customer churn, there might be a reason that's coming out of it that is just pure that is truly correlative. But then you're trying to explain that to someone and convince them of it when we as humans want to know what the cause is. Is there some way to think about that connection? Do we just admit it that it's not there because you can't find it? Or or is there a different way to approach the explanation? That's tricky. And I think it's it's tricky not just in kind of algorithmic decision-making context, but also often in kind of social scientific cases where the best we can do in terms of data sometimes is correlational. Um, I think the first thing to be clear about is what is somebody asking when they want an explanation, right? So, so some machine gives them an output. Are they trying to understand why the machine thought that they were likely to break their probation or not qualify for the mortgage or whatever? Is, is the thing they're asking, why did this machine reject me? Or are they asking something more about the structure of the world? Like, why am I the sort of person who wouldn't be trusted in this way? Or why am I the sort of person who isn't given this? And so if you're asking the first question, I think if the machine is based on correlations, then that, that's kind of the right explanation. The right explanation is like, well, the system knew about XYZ and we know that there's a correlation between XYZ and this particular outcome. And so it was on the basis of those indicators that the machine gave you this input. Um, but if what the person really, really wants to know is, uh, you know, for example, maybe a medical scenario would make this more realistic. Um, they don't, you don't just want to know uh, why does the... Um, why did the system recommend that I take this particular uh, drug, for example? You kind of want to know, what is it about the causal structure of the world and the causal structure of me that makes it the case that I ought to take this drug? And there, I think the correlations are going to be really um, not sufficiently satisfying because in that case, you're really asking a question about the causal structure of the world and about how this is going to have a causal impact on you. So, so the answer to, to this, like many things, is it depends. And I'm sorry, that's, I think, somewhat unsatisfying. But I do think that's the first step in a lot of these questions is to be clear about, you know, what's the person asking when they want an explanation? What is it they're actually after? Perhaps the starting point in sort of addressing my question is, 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 is asking whether the, the audience wants, needs to know the cause. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and even there, I think there's all sorts of other dimensions of complexity. I think sometimes people want an explanation because they feel like it's owed to them. It's more about the nature of, you know, appreciating something about the nature of the relationship that you have with some institution or um, some individual. Sometimes it might be more just about having trust in the system and under, uh, so that you can have a partnership moving forward. And those are different reasons uh, than wanting to understand the causal structure per se. I mean, it might be that giving a good causal explanation will have the consequence that you will trust the system um, uh, and so on. But there's all sorts of reasons why we explain to each other as humans and why you might care about a machine system being explainable mm. and providing explanations. So we've talked about going from sort of thinking and analysis through to the decision. What about decision to action? What 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 matters in that transition? We we seen some research about um, the importance of sort of viscera, you know, visceral reactions and emotional tie to to the decision, or um, just sort of the foundational knowledge of that, you know, being a certain level of certainty. What what matters to actually go from deciding to acting and commitment to that action? That's such an important question. And it's one that I'm going to confess is not my main area of study. Um, so I don't think I'm going to have anything hugely original to say here. But I, I think you're right that emotion and commitment plays a huge role there. Um, I mean, I think we all know how hard behavior change is, right? We all know how hard it is to decide that you're going to eat 
in a more healthful way or that you're going to exercise every day and then to actually get yourself to do that. Um, uh, and so there's, there's quite a lot of psychological research that has identified some good strategies for behavior change in general. But it sounds like you're thinking about cases where it's not that you, as it were, want to implement a new policy for your life. It's more that you're thinking about a particular case and you've made a decision and now you need to translate that into a behavior. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I think for that case, actually understanding and explanation do play an important role for a few reasons. So I think none of us like to just carry out orders that we don't understand, right? There's something, there's something unpleasant about that, right? So if mm. you're just told this is the right way to do it and you don't understand why that's the right way to do it, um, I think we do have a, uh, th you know, that's a motivational hurdle. Mm. Um, but I think it's also a cognitive hurdle for the following reason. So I've argued, as have other people, that one of the main reasons it matters that we have an explanation or that we understand something is because that's what's going to allow us to generalize to new cases. So, you know, an intuitive example here might be something like, um, you know, most of the time it doesn't matter if you don't know how your microwave works, right? I, I only very, very vaguely have any sense how mine works. Um, and for, for, for the everyday cases, it doesn't matter if I know how it works or not. But suppose I had to generalize to a new case. Suppose somebody said like, well, if you put your microwave in, a, in a lower gravity, would that affect how it works? If you put your microwave... Um, you know, at really high temperatures, would that affect how it works? In order to answer these questions that require generalizing beyond the normal case, you need to know something about how it works and which sorts of factors are going to influence it and how. So now imagine you're in a case where you've been, you've been handed an opaque judgment <laughs> about how you ought to do something or what you ought to do, and you don't understand it. You know, that might be fine for the totally normal case, but now the world changes slightly. You know, uh, what should you do differently? You, you won't know how to update that judgment or change it appropriately if you don't understand the basis for it. Um, you know, so, so if, you know, a doctor tells you to take a particular amount of some medication, but then your blood pressure changes or then your weight changes or then something else changes about your health. If you don't understand something about the initial recommendation, it, you're not going to have any idea how these factors may or may not affect what you should do. So I think beyond just the motivational piece about having some sense of understanding, I think it plays this really important role in allowing you to actually adapt flexibly to a changing world and to make your behavior correspond in an appropriate way. That's um, gives that makes me think about the AI explanation and the fact that um, explanations from an AI could well f end up following a similar pattern. That if we want to generalize more AI, we need to focus more on on creating the parallel. I don't want to overdo the parallels between humans and AI, but um, if that's, I, I hadn't thought about the role of the explanation being a, a learning, taking the things that, that matter for generalizing that, that understanding. Yeah. I think in the human case and in an educational context, I think it's, it's crucial. And I think there is what I think is largely still an open question in AI, although AI experts might correct me on this about, you know, one of the places where a lot of our best machine learning systems break down is when they have to generalize, right? Often mm -hmm. you can get something that is amazing in the, in the context of what it was trained on and can break down in spectacular ways <laughs> when, when it has to generalize. Um, could it be that the way that humans solve that problem is in part by these kinds of explanation-based mechanisms? And could it be that if we could have some of those mechanisms that aim for something more like explanation or understanding in the artificial learning case, that those systems would be, do better generalization. 
certainly pushes me more towards thinking um, it it's a good discipline to try and push the correlations to reveal more. Um, one, so that you know for sure that it's a, a genuine correlation, it's not a spurious correlation, but two, revealing whether or not, especially in these these vast data sets, whether there there are causal factors that that allow either the machines or people to to take in more general terms. That's one of the things that we see a lot in AI, these what would be called counterintuitive results, things that come up out of the data that just didn't fit what people were thinking the causal structure looked like. And there's such a big aha moment when people when people go through that experience. It's quite delightful when you realize, wow, that's what that was. It's it's almost like there's this sort of sweet spot of counterintuitiveness that is that makes us really curious and and is 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 quite a is, it feels good. It feels good to find something new like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I and mean, one thing that my lab's interested in is exactly what prompts our curiosity. And I think those kinds of cases where you find a gap between what you thought you knew and <laughs> what, the, what the world seems to be like is precisely one of the things that's been posited to be one of the most important drivers of curiosity. And in our own work, we find that how much you expect to learn by trying to find an explanation is another one of the biggest predictors of whether or not you're going to have one of those like, huh, that's cool. And oh. I want to find out why kinds of moments. So you study huh moments. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're going to run out of time, but we'd love to do a whole other series on that story. Curiosity being such a significant part of, of um, what we've talked about actually in this, in this whole sort of series. I guess we should really go to that last question. If you had two pieces of advice to offer an AI designers, what would they be? The first thing I would say is that I am not an expert in AI design, uh, but I can think of a couple of lessons from psychology and education that I can imagine being interesting and applicable. And one of them has to do with a theme that's already emerged in our conversation, which has to do to be really clear about what your, what your learning objective or your goal is in a particular case of interacting with humans. Um, I think in the context of explainability, people don't always differentiate whether they're aiming for making a human user happy or making a human user trust the system, or somehow improving the human user's future behavior in some way, or somehow optimizing some outcome. So I think the first thing is just to be really clear about those, because some of those are psychological outcomes, right? Is the person going to trust you and be happy and so on? As others are really different. And so I think you really want to be clear on what kind of explainability matters and why, because that's going to have a consequence for what you how you try to solve the problem. And the other thing that I would say is that there's, there's a perhaps unfortunate feature of human psychology that we don't always know what's best for us. Um, and an example of this that I like is something that people in the field of education uh, refer to as desirable difficulties. So sometimes the material that strikes us as most informative and most useful when it's presented to us is not the material from which we learn the best, right? So in fact, the things that we learn best from are the ones that we have to struggle with right? They're desirable difficulties because they're difficulties that they pose a cognitive challenge to us. We have to work through, we have to make sense of it, but they're desirable because ultimately we learn. And so sometimes you find these mismatches between what people report they like now versus what actually has good outcomes later, or how much they think they learned now versus how well they actually do on a memory test later. And so I think 
uh, this is part of the reason why the first point is so important. You want to be really clear on what your goal is in interacting with a person. Um, because if you just optimize for those immediate indicators where someone says to you, um, I understand that, that was informative, I liked that, you might not actually be tracking the things you ultimately care about, which are, did the person actually learn something? Are they actually going to remember this two weeks later? Is it actually going to change their behavior decision-making? I love that timeline to the learning. <laughs> yeah. if they, the immediate reaction is, did, did, did I get five stars, right? Did, you know, did the user click the five-star button versus the three-star button? Rather than the, the real objective is having somebody learn something over a three-month period. Right, and so designing for that timeline of learning and what you're trying to learn, and also I love the concept of struggle. Um, oh yeah, struggling with something hard versus, um, and 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 getting satisfaction out of the relief of that hardness stopping. Yeah. However, it stops. It stops because you put your pen down, or it stops because you actually have the aha moment, and the learning happens as it sort of assimilates later. Yeah. Um, reminds me of of one of our kids in quantum physics, the difference between watching a TED talk and struggling through a quantum physics paper. <laughs> and yes, that is exactly that is a perfect <laughs> example of desirable difficulties. I love that. <laughs> well, Tiny, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been a really, uh, it's been quite a pleasure. It's